Hey everyone, it's me, Erica. And Rachel. And today we have a special guest. Hello everyone, I'm Krista. And Yay. you're listening to Story Crime the Podcast. Woo! 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 We're so excited to have Krista joining us. I'm so excited to be here. So Krista is one of our longtime friends. We've gone many years of knowing Krista. High We've school. gone many years <laughs> of knowing Krista. Yeah, since high school. So um, we are doing our little Christmas celebration that we do every year called the Bitches Christmas. Yep. Care to explain, Rachel? Um, well, it started in high school. We were the bitches to our friend. <laughs> And why were we? <laughs> we were not bitches to our friend. We were bitches. We were, we were coined the bitches. That's what he called us. It was endearing, uh, endearing, kind of like sisters, little, little bobblehead yeah. dogs. Yeah, that he kept yes. in the back of his car. Yeah. Well, I think I have the picture somewhere, so I can post the picture of the dog. You should. You got to so people yeah. get the reference. But yeah. we became the bitches, and it stuck. He left the country and we continue to be the bitches. He lives halfway across the world now, but we're still the bitches. And now his wife is one of our biggest fans. Hi, Carly. Hi, Carly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we're here celebrating our Christmas. And so we thought, why not have Krista come on Mm -hmm. and do this with us? Um, Krista, you really wanted to do a certain case and we're not doing that. But it's turned out... Big shocker that Krista actually knows the case that we're doing tonight, which is like so surprising. I was I like, I know a shocked. little bit about it, but I can't wait to learn more. Well, and it's it's funny because this, um, if you've read like the title of the episode, we are talking about Dean Quarrel, and he's not a very well known serial killer, and I think that's because, um, these his crimes came about in. 1973, and just a few short years later, was overshadowed by another very big serial killer called John Wayne Gacy. And nobody really, it was like, everybody just kind of forgot about what has become known as the Houston mass murders. So that's what we're talking about today. Okay. It's going to be very, I've been working on this. This has been a very like mentally straining episode because it's so long. And so we are probably going to do this in two parts, but they are going to come out back to back. So you won't have to wait for that. So um, I guess you guys just get right into it. All right. So we are going to start kind of at the end ish of this case. And then we're going to go back to the beginning. So we're going to start on August 8th, 1973. So at 8.30 a.m. that morning, a phone call came into the Pasadena, Texas Police Department. The voice on the other other end of the line was a teenager saying, quote, y'all better get over here. I just killed a man. Oh, 18? He was 17. Oh, shit. Two police officers arrived at the address, 2020 Lamar Street in Pasadena, to find three disheveled teenagers sitting on the front steps of a pretty unassuming bungalow. Uh, the officers noticed that there was a 22 caliber pistol laying nearby on the front lawn. One of the teenagers, a 17-year-old boy called Wayne, 
pointed to the house and said, quote, he's in there. Oh. One of the officers secured the weapon in the trunk of his car and headed inside. The officers walked in the house and were met with and was met with the naked body of a man who appeared to be in his early to mid-30s. They could see right away that his body appeared to be covered in gunshot wounds. After securing the scene, the three teenagers were taken into the Pasadena Police Department to be questioned. With the, the kids gone and crime scene technicians now on the scene, officers started going through the house inch by inch to try and fi- figure out what exactly happened. They quickly started to figure out that this was probably not just an average, like, one-off murder, just mm-hmm. a shooting, that there was a lot more to this. In one of the bedrooms, they discovered that the entire carpeted floor was covered in this thick plastic sheeting. Oh, that's never a good sign. No, never. (laughs) (laughs) Near the bed, there was a seven by three foot piece of unfinished plywood. At each of the four corners of the plywood slab, there had been holes drilled. Two of the holes had handcuffs threaded (gasps) through them, while the other two had nylon rope. Oh my God. More pairs of handcuffs were found just a few feet away from the plywood slab. Off to the side, they found a hunting knife and open paper bags that contained cans of spray paint. On the bed, they found like a military style gas mask. Where the hell are these kids getting that? Well, we'll find out. Okay. Now there was men's clothing, men in like boys clothing strewn about everywhere. And despite what they were finding in the bedroom, the house itself was like pretty empty, kind of like someone was in the process of moving in or moving out. It just didn't feel lived in. On a bookshelf, they found a very well-loved copy of Human Sexuality. And nearby nearby that, they discovered very thin glass rods a double-headed plastic dildo measuring in at 17 inches. Oh, my God. Yes. Now, the walls of the bedroom were almost entirely bare, except for a poster with a, quote, Jesus-like image on it with the caption, love. No. What? No. (laughs) It's not adding up. The math ain't mathing on this one. Out in the driveway, the police were looking through the white 1942 Ford Econoline van that was parked outside. The entire back portion of the van was concealed from the outside by navy blue curtains. Inside the van was decorated with a loose swatch of rug and a there was like a big wooden box that was kind of padded on top like it was a extra seating created in the back. Mm-hmm. I know exactly the type of van you're talking about. Yes. Mm-hmm. That 70s show style. <laughs> yes. So pegboards were hanging on the walls of the van and there were like rings and hooks and shit hanging from the walls to like hang stuff on. Mm-mm. It's like what my nightmares are made of. <laughs> yeah. The rape me van. The rape me van. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a pair of binoculars, a length of nylon rope, some tools, and a portable radio were found behind the driver's seat. Yeah, no thank you. Like, it just all feels suspicious. Like, suspicious mm. shit you wouldn't normally keep in your car. Yeah. Right. In the backyard, the police opened the garden shed, which contained a wooden box that appear- with what appeared to be air holes drilled into the sides. The box was hinged at the front, and there was, like, a hasp on it to keep it closed. Now, the box wasn't quite big enough to fit, like, an adult human. Oh, no. However, when the detective felt around inside, he pulled out what appeared to be hair. Like, it just appeared to be human hair. Like, it was, you know, there's, like, a big difference between that and, and other kinds of hair. So, detectives were able to ascertain that the house belonged to a man named Arnold Coral. 
Now, at the moment, Arnold and his current wife were not occupying the house. Instead, they had been renting it out to Arnold's 33-year-old son, Dean. They were able to confirm this after finding a wallet in the home, and they could determine from that that the dead man laying in the hallway was indeed Dean Quarrel. So, with detectives and crime scene technicians working steadily at the murder scene, Officers back at Pasadena Police Department turned their attention to these three teenagers, but more specifically to the 17-year-old boy who had now identified himself as Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. So he was the one who had made the phone call and confessed to killing Mm -hmm. Dean. So Wayne is what we're going to call Elmer Wayne Henley. He goes by Wayne, so we're going to kind of keep it consistent. He's Wayne is, yeah. yeah. So he had a pretty interesting story to tell officers. He would go on to tell them that the man lying dead in the house was his friend and that Dean had tried to rape and kill him and his friends the night before. He said he had known Dean for a while. They hung around together a lot. And um, these, the Wayne and his two friends were not the only kids that Dean has ever done this to before and that he had killed many times before this. He said, quote, Coral liked little boys and that he had been paying Wayne to bring them to him. (gasps) No. He told the police that he could lead them to more bodies at um, a boat shed near the Houston Heights area, which we'll talk about later, um, that Dean owned or Dean rented this boat shed. So the police, they weren't really believing Wayne. They thought for sure that he like had lost his mind. He had been up all night huffing paint with him and his like him uh, and his friends have been huffing which was like one of apparently huffing paint was quite typical thing. thing it was like a cheap way to get really high sure. so they they would do that a lot um and they had been up all night huffing and drinking and smoking weed and all of that right so he probably didn't present as too reliable exactly and he's just admitted to killing someone yeah so they're like okay, okay bro nice try yeah so um in order to be certain though they did you know entertain this thought and took Wayne had Wayne take them to the boat shed um so this was a storage facility on silver silver bell lane in Houston Texas when they arrived the shed was locked so they went to the manager and she said you know I don't have a key but Dean's been no trouble you know like we have no problems with Dean so I don't know what you'd be finding in there um (laughs) but the the police said okay well we're just gonna break the lock off and she said have at her Mm -hmm. so they did as soon as they were inside, I guess Wayne Henley turned, like, a very certain shade of pale and, like, looked like he was about to, like, throw up. Sure. And it was, like, almost from that moment on that the police officers were, like, maybe there's some truth to this. <laughs> maybe this kid isn't bullshitting us. Right. What was in the box or the shed. <laughs> so the Houston slash Pasadena police had no idea what they had just stumbled upon this was going to end up being the largest mass killing in U.S. history no. to that date. Wow. But who was the true killer in this case? Was it this dead asshole in the house? Right. Spoiler alert, it was. <laughs> or was that just a weak cover story for these three teenagers who admittedly had just claimed Killed to be responsible for his death? Now, over the course of the next several days and weeks, body after body was removed from the boat shed that belonged to the now deceased Dean Arnold Coral. The bodies all belonged to young boys ranging in age between 13 to 21 who had been reported mm-hmm. missing from the area of Houston, Texas known as the Heights. 
Wayne, along with another teenage boy, would end up leading investigators to even more bodies, some in the area known as High Island Beach, and some near the deceased man's cabin at Lake Sam Rayburn. Jesus. The number of bodies discovered would end up being a staggering 27. Wow. Beating the record in the U.S. of just 25 bodies, uh, formerly held by a man in California called Juan Corona, who was convicted of killing 25 migrant workers in 1971. Holy shit. After the discovery of the last body, the investigation into these horrendous murders stopped abruptly, but many believe that the actual number of victims could be much, much higher. Oh my god! So that's only how many they found. Yes. There could be more. There could be countless more bodies. They have no mm. idea. So what is the story here? Who really killed all these boys and why? And how in such a small neighborhood like the Heights, which again, I'm going to kind of explain that area to you guys in a bit here. Mm-hmm. How could so many of these disappearances and murders go undetected? Mm-hmm. And to understand all of this, of course, we do have to go all the way back to begin to the beginning. And that's with that dead son of a bitch laying <laughs> in his house at 2020 Lamar Street. Call it how you see it, Erica. Yes. His name, of course, is Dean Coral, or as he would later be nicknamed, the Candyman of Houston Heights. Mm, the Candyman. <sighs> yes. So... We're going to start by talking about where Dean Coral came from. All right. All right. So he was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on Christmas Eve in 1939. Christmas Eve. Yes. So coming up. Yeah. Wow. That's unfortunate. Mother was named, his mother was named Mary and his father was named Arnold. And now it's really important, I think, to understand that because Dean Coral did die before any of this came to light, what we know about Dean Coral comes from either his uh uh, like elmer wayne henley who has been very outspoken about this whole ordeal over the years yes the the teenage boy victim i guess as well and um the another teenage boy that we're going to talk about later has also spoken a little bit about dean coral as well as his mother who lives in this little city called denial that her son had any responsibility to bear seriously yep So just keep that. And also what we know about Dean's childhood is only coming from his mother. And I think she shades it. Yeah. I'm sure it's a bit skewed a little bit. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So his mother's name was Mary and his father's name was Arnold. He also had a younger brother called Stanley. Now, Stanley and Arnold have basically distanced themselves. They have never spoken publicly about Dean or any of the crimes. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Now, Mary and Arnold divorced when Dean was six, and after the divorce, Dean's father was drafted into the military and stationed in Memphis, Tennessee. Mary and, you know, decided that she did want the boys to be close with their father, so she also relocated to Memphis so that they could see his their dad on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Mary and Arnold actually would briefly reconcile and move the family to Pasadena, Texas. This second marriage was short-lived. Just after moving the family to te- Texas, Mary and Arnold divorced for the second time, leaving Mary to raise the two boys on her own. Shit. She would say that Arnold did maintain a good relationship with his sons. He always paid his child support, was always taking them when he, you know, mm-hmm. he was supportive father. And she always said, like, he, you know, he was a tough and a stern father, but he was never abusive. They always had a good relationship even after the divorce, so... Again, we don't know if that's true, but we can only take what she says. Right. So, 
Now, during his childhood, Dean was a pretty sick kid. At around the age of six, he suffered from an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever. Oh. And it went undiagnosed for so long that when they did finally figure out what was wrong with him, he had already developed a heart murmur, which I guess is yeah. um, normal for rheumatic fever if it goes undiagnosed. Yeah, that back is then, that's like super dangerous yeah. uh, illness. Um, So he had developed a heart murmur from this, and this would exclude him from participating in gym, different sports leagues, stuff like that. Normal things that kids would have been doing in the 50s growing Mm -hmm. up, right? Did I ever tell you I have a heart murmur? No, you did not. Yeah, fun fact. There you go. Now you know. Were you born with it? Um, No, I was really sick when I was a kid. Yeah, same. As Dean. Yeah, same as Dean. Oh my God. Don't look in my shed. (laughs) Do you have cardiac issues now? I can feel it sometimes, like a little flutter. Like I'll be like, if it's like, you know, I'm just kind of chilling and I can feel my heart. Just like a little bloop bloop. I'm like, oh. oh, oh I didn't know that, that about fun. you either. I didn't know that. Yeah, you've never. Yeah, well, the there you go. Fun know. fact. Trivia oh, night. You know. Did it get you out of gym class when you were a kid? No, but I wish I would have. <laughs> I hated gym, obviously. <laughs> um, so his childhood illness would also keep him from making many friends. And he started to isolate himself from his peers fairly early on. But I think Dean was a kid who just preferred that anyways. Mm-hmm. Some kids are just solitary beings. Mm-hmm. Um, his mother stated quote Dean never cared if anybody ever played with him or not from the time he was little he never went any place to see anybody else if the kids came to our house he'd be nice to them and he'd play with them he would never go seeking them out hmm. Mary would say that Dean resisted having friends due to an upsetting occurrence that happened at a birthday party when he was around the age of six now apparently he was also a very small kid and he wasn't able to like beat the other kids and win some prize um, and this really hurt his feelings. Aww. And from that point on, he did not show an interest in making new friends. Aw, poor little baby Dean. I mean, do we want to say that this is what led to his crimes later and not getting a prize? Right? <laughs> his kidding. villain origin story? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't get a prize at that birthday party. That's why everyone gets a fucking participation medal now. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, despite this dean was described as being a kid who always seemed to worry about things and he always worried about other people his mother described him as a very serious kid at around the age of nine his mother started to worry about her boys and decided that they would be better off spending the summer at their grandparents farm in indiana i don't know what she was worried about But she just was worried about them i guess like there was a lot of crime in the area they lived in and like at one point like the police had asked dean to like rat out some neighborhood kids for them like be mm-hmm. kind of like an informant and she was like no it's a good way to get your ass beat yeah exactly <laughs> and she was like no i don't want my boys around this so they're going to indiana to live on the farm and she believed that during that summer that was enough of a sex education lesson stating quote when they came back i didn't <laughs> see there was much that i had to tell them what kind of sex training do you have to give a boy that's lived on a farm? Oh, no. You don't have to tell them nothing. <laughs> okay, well, I Mary. feel like there's a quite a bit more you have to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> sure, Mary. Sure. I'm sure watching the cows fuck or the cow and bull fuck is not the proper <laughs> sex education you want your child to be leaving with. Uh, no. Now, Mary would also later stay, state that Dean was never at all concerned with sex anyways, even as he got to be an adult. It was just not something that ever crossed his mind. How would she mean, know? I know. I really love that Mary feels Mary. that she knows this. Yeah. But I also want to know what happened on that farm then. Yeah. Right? What did that boy see? Right? <laughs> what did Dean see? 
Um, when Dean reached adolescence, his mother had remarried to a traveling salesman called Jake West. The family- a traveling salesman. That's a real thing. Yeah. He used to sell, like, encyclopedia. I think he sold clocks, specifically. Right. That was a real thing back in the day. The encyclop- Do you remember the vacuum salesman? Yeah. Anybody yeah. ever have a vacuum guy come to your house? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's where we got our vacuum. Probably. Was from the vacuum guy. Yeah. We had encyclopedias. Door to door. Yeah. 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 You were the shit if you had a pack of set. It's like, not a pack. A set? A set yeah. of encyclopedias. Or, like, you would go to, like, your friend's house and be like, I've got A through D. Do you have, like, <laughs> yeah. E through God J? damn it, my... my- <laughs> Book report is on elephants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not book report my essay. <laughs> um, when Dean reached adolescence, his mother had remarried that tra- clock salesman called Jake West, and the family moved to this little town called Vidor, Texas. Um, a community member of Vidor described it the following way. Quote, Vidor is considered and always has been a backward community. We pay damned little taxes. We have darn little. A railroad town. A rough class of people here after the war. There are no colored people in this town. Uh-uh. There has never been, unquote. It's also considered a sundown town, which what is that? Um, basically, like, if you weren't white, you were not outside after sundown. There would oh, be problems. No. So, What year was this again? Remind me. This is like in the 50s and, and 60s. And Jesus. what town was this? It's called Vidor, Texas. Okay. So this is a small town in Texas. Um, yeah, so uh, there was a reporter that wrote an article about it. They also said of the little town, it's, quote, the kind of place where the big event for the kids is to pour kerosene on a cat and set it on fire. <gasps> Are you kidding me? What? It's the kind of place where nobody cares about civil rights and everybody cares about the high school football team. Well, what else are they doing? Like, it's... Yeah. There's nothing That's to like do. that varsity blues shit, you know? Yeah. That fo- high school football team is life. Yeah. I don't want your life. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Who's that, Dawson? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want your last. Anyways, Dean attended Vidor High School and was a pretty unremarkable student. He didn't receive straight A's or anything, but you he also... You are unremarkable. <laughs> well, he just was like, he wasn't like acing and like being on the honor roll, but he also yeah. wasn't like flunking out. He just was like there. there. He was just in, in there somewhere. Yeah. Now, he didn't no. play uh, football or anything like that. Um... And he didn't really care for school all that much, but he did stick it out for as long as he did because he enjoyed being in the band. His instrument of choice was, of course, the trombone. Of course. Of course. I was like, of course. Why, yes. Of course. He loved it. Oh. I don't know. He loved the trombone. And um, yeah, he just loved it. Fun fact, Erica played the trombone. I played the trombone for <laughs> very for a lot of years. Several from grade six to grade 12, actually. I could not do it. Now, I tried to play one um, because we have, like, a school band at the school I work at. And I did try it. I couldn't even blow a note. Like, I couldn't even make a sound. It was, yeah. I wonder if I'd be able to play the clarinet still. That's what I played in high school. Yeah. No, I... I was percussion. Were you? Yeah. Played the triangle. (laughs) Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) The tambourine. The maracas. (laughs) Erica, it's like, all right, Krista, you ready? Here's your part. Ding! <laughs> yep. And I loved it. <laughs> um, one baby. <laughs> Did you actually play like the bongos or anything? Um, this was just like a very brief time in grade nine. Oh, okay. So yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Mm-hmm. All right. So one strange thing that Dean did like to do, and this is coming right from his mother, is that he would like to catch flying squirrels and wear them around his neck on a chain and bring them to school in his boots. 
Now, it's highly well, disturbing. I was what? not clear if he was killing them or like wearing live, live squirrels. squirrels on a necklace. I don't know but what's better. Yeah. I am a just live here squirrel to or a dead you. squirrel on your necklace. I guess. It's both like pretty weird. Yeah. Um, the live squirrel thing, like I would just love to watch them be freaking out, like scratching the fuck <laughs> out of him. Or in his boot. In his <laughs> boots. There's a, there's a squirrel in my boot. <laughs> Somebody's poison the water hole. Do you guys? Did you guys have that Woody toy back the, in the nineties? I didn't. Sheriff Woody. I saw it from the Sheriff movie. Sheriff Woody. <laughs> Somebody's poison the water. Anyway, so the life changing day in the Coral household happened when a pecan salesman or pecan salesman, however you'd like to say it, no, uh, dropped. That was a job. Yes, <laughs> I sell nuts. Pecans. Yeah. Oh. So he dropped by the family what home. What if you were alert? Oh, anyways. <laughs> Nobody cared back then. People weren't snowflakes who were allergic to nuts back then. Just kidding. I'm joking about that. But, but like, what uh, what salary is that looking like? I'm a nut salesman. Like, what? <laughs> it's like on the, on the home buying shows here. It's like, I'm a amateur hamster trainer and aura reader. And my husband sells pecans door to door. Our budget, budget is, is three, three million. million. Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. So this was a life-changing day in the Pecan Coral household. salesman. Yes, because <laughs> he came to the door. And when he did, he noticed that Dean's mother had been busy working away baking some pecan pies. The salesman suggested to Mary that if she liked baking pies, then she should definitely get in the candy-making business. <gasps> oh. So it was then that the Pecan Prince Candy Company was born, right there in her kitchen. Wow. So she started it. She started it Good with on her, her husband, her Jake West. So the whole family drove to the Houston Candy Factory. They paid $50 for a praline recipe, and the rest is history. Can, what is a praline? I think it's like it's, a candy nut. Like a candy nut. A candy nut? Can. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They're really delicious. Like, I've heard of, like, a pralines and cream, but I don't really know what that is. We can get, like, jars of praline nuts, right? Yeah. It's, like, the way that they've been candied. Oh, okay. Got it. They're quite delicious. They are really good. Like, I've had a candy, like, the candy nuts before, but I didn't know they were called a praline. Okay. Cool. So, Dean loved Mm -hmm. the family candy business, and every free moment he had, he spent it working at the candy factory for his mother. He didn't have a social life, because all he did was work at Pecan Prince. But you would think as the son of a candy factory, you'd have a lot of friends. Like, I would be like, let me be your friend. Give me some candy. Oh, we will get there. Oh, okay, cool. With the family (laughs) now living and working so closely together because they were um, running this business out of their garage. Um, So tensions did start to arise, especially between Dean and his stepfather, Jake. Mary would play the role of peacemaker between her husband and the two kids, but they were never willing to see each other's point of view. Now, at the age of 19, Dean's family moved to an area of Houston called The Heights, where they set up their new candy shop in, like, a little shed kind of thing. At the same time, Dean's mother decided that it was time that Dean move out of the house, and this is when she sent him back to Indiana to live with his grandmother on the farm. Now, she needed help because his grandfather had passed away, Mm -hmm. so he went there. Now, he would spend the next two years um, living in Indiana, And he worked at, like, a coil factory there. And for fun, he would explore his interest in astrology. So he had a telescope in the barn that he would stargaze with or just spy on his neighbors. And how (laughs) old would he have been now? Um, He's 19. So from the ages of 19 to 21, he spent them in Indiana with his grandmother. 
He would also make movies with some of the kids that lived around the farm, and he became really close with a couple of young girls, and they would make these, like, comedic surgical movies using, like, chicken livers and shit. So she would, like, lay on the table, and the other one would, like, be pretending to remove organs. I guess it was, like, all good, clean fun, and, like, there was nothing, like, nefarious with him hanging out with these girls. Dean really got along well with girls. Okay. Right? So not in, like, a sexual relationship way but as like a friend way sure. right yeah so no one found him creepy or disturbing right. during these times right um so when he came back to texas one of the girls whose name was wanda continued to correspond with dean by mail and phone like they and dean would like send her cakes and candy from the candy factory uh, back to Indiana. And I've always wondered this because when we covered, do you remember covering Nanny Doss, the giggling granny? Yeah. She, when she was like looking for a man, she would like answer a like personal ad in the Lonely Hearts column or whatever. Yeah. And as part of like their courting through letters, she would mail cakes. Like, did people just mail, mail cakes? Cake? Like, how do uh, you mail a cake? And especially back then, I bet you it's not, like, one-day delivery. Right. It would have taken a minute. It's going to be a bit moldy, not to mention broken. Exactly. So he's, like, mailing from from Texas to Indiana. He's mailing this – I get mailing candy, I guess. Like, that would be easy enough. But the cakes? I don't get it. Anyways. Um, So, anyway, so one day, um, because they had been – him and Wanda had been corresponding back and forth. And she called him up and she said, Dean, I have some big news for you. You need to sit down. He said, okay. And she said, listen, I am getting married. And Dean was like, oh, my God, to who? And she just said right into the phone, I'm marrying you. Dean was like – I like her way. Well, Dean was just like, okay, I'm going to have to call you back. (laughs) And like I said, uh, Dean had absolutely no interest in girls in a romantic nature. And he certainly had no interest in getting married at that time. She had to shoot her shot. I right. Mean, good so honor. Mary sa- would say that it was because Dean had watched herself go through many failed marriages. Um, and it soured him on the whole idea of marriage. And from that point on, like, he never spoke to Wanda again. He was just like, oh, really? I'm going to call you back. And then never called her back. Oh, so after she Wanda. said, I want to marry you or I'm going to marry you, they just never. He was like, just him. give me one second. Click. Die. Blocked, you know what? Deleted. Blessing in disguise. Because oh, yeah. Yeah. Good on you, Wanda. <laughs> yeah. um, but who knows how things could have turned out? Yeah. In this day and age, it would have been a block and delete. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ghosted. So, yeah. After Dean moved home, the Pecan Prince Candy Company continued to be successful, but the West marriage was not. It was forming very deep cracks. So after a heated argument with her husband, where he told Mary to go home and stay home and never come back to the factory, Ooh. she decided, okay, well then guess what? <laughs> All right, bet. <laughs> I'm going to start my own company, candy company, that's going to be in direct competition with Pecan Prince. So may, remind, I just want to remind you that they're fighting a lot, but they're not divorced. Right. right. But they're now, not even separated, but now she's opening she's her opening own factory. She's opening up Walnut Princess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Mary... With the help of Dean, started the Coral Candy Company, and this was now so the Pecan Prince was running out of a sh- shed that they rented. Not Cor- the shed, honey. Not that shed, <laughs> a different shed. The Coral Candy Company was running in the garage of the family home. That house Again, probably smelled so good. Mary and Jake are still married, living in the house. That's pretty crazy. It's all, all a mess. It reminds me. Do you remember that Bugs Bunny? Where the sheep and the coyote would be like clocking in. 
how are you, Sam? I'm good, Frank. How are you? And then they'd go to work and then come back or like fight each other and then clock out and then walk home. I like do it, not. Are you talking about like a foghorn leghorn sort of situation? Sort of. Yeah. But it was the sheep, like the, not the sheep, the, yeah, it was a sheep and the coyote. And then they would clock in and then, and then they as would soon as chase each over. other. Yeah. Yeah. Or like the coyote would try to kill the sheep yeah. and then like the sheep would outsmart him and you know, like the, and then they um, would clock and out. they would clock out and then pick up their lunch boxes and walk home <laughs> and live like together. civilized human beings. <laughs> that's that's what that reminds me of. Wow. Mary and Jake were not civilized human beings. They were dueling oh, candy God. companies now. So yeah. Mary named herself the president of the Coral Candy Company while Dean was named vice president and his brother Stanley was named secretary treasurer in absentia due to the fact that he was serving in the Marines at the time. So he wasn't even living there. <laughs> um, so... Nice to be included, though, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> so as the business at the Coral Candy Company started to pick up some steam, Jake West would start trying to secretly sabotage his wife's new company. Jake would tell people that, quote, secretly? somebody stole all the candy recipes and somebody's been knocking off the packaging of pecan prints. Whereas Mary would strike back, labeling her candy packages with the slogan, quote, Coral Candy Company, new, improved, but with a woman's touch. Oh, yes, queen. Now, eventually, eventually the rivalry would come to a head in 1963, and Mary and Jake would officially divorce. Pecan Prince eventually went out of business, and the Coral Candy Company would dominate the heights. (gasps) Boom, boom, boom. Fuck yes, Mary. (laughs) So Dean ended up moving into an apartment above the garage where the Coral Candy Company was. This was his first apartment where he lived fully on his own without being under the watchful eye of his mother. And it was during this time that we would see, like, the first hint of the monster that Dean would eventually become. So, of course, like, a lot of the young kids were employed at the candy factory helping cleaning up at the end of the shifts or whatever. And there was a young boy working at the candy company who would file a complaint against Dean stating that Dean had been propositioning him. Mm In what way? Like, sexually. Yeah. Right? So, or for, like, dates and stuff like that. And from what we learn about Dean, it was probably for, like, oral sex and stuff and, like, I'll pay you or whatever. Mm -mm. So, Mary was, of course, in complete denial that her son was gay because she was very homophobic and also that he would ever do anything like that. So, instead of, like, doing anything with Dean, she just fired the boy and she paid him off in hopes of making the whole situation just sort of disappear, which it apparently worked. It did go away for a time. In 1964, when Dean was 24 years old, he was drafted into the army. So he was sent to Fort Worth, Fort Polk, Louisiana for his basic training. He was then sent to Fort Benning in Georgia, where he received training as a radio repair specialist before being permanently stationed at Fort Hood, Texas as a radio repair specialist. That's interestingly interesting. (laughs) Is it? A radio repair specialist. Like, it's, where'd you get into that, bud? Now, there was a lot of interesting jobs we're learning back then. Yeah. So Radio repair specialist, pecan, pecan sales. <laughs> Do you guys say pecan or pecan? I say or pecan. pecan. I say pecan. I, but I know people mood. that say pecan. Yeah. So I don't say pecan. I say pecan. Yeah. Not pecan or right. pecan. Pecan. The pecan, but the pecan. Pecan or pecan to be. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. To, be. <laughs> to pecan or not to pecan. So again, that was a radio radio, radio repair, repair specialist, specialist for I the can. military. Okay. 
So his stint in the army did not last long, though. His mother was able to successfully apply for a hardship release for him, stating that she couldn't possibly run the Coral Candy Company without his help, which is something that happens. I guess I've never heard of this hardship, like, thing. Like a hardship release from the military. But this is like the second, when I was researching this, I heard about somebody else that had the the, the same thing. Being a thing, and a lot of times it's probably very justified. Yeah. In her point, in her. She just didn't want her baby boy away from her for too Mm. long. Oh, God. Um, During his time in the military, Dean would have his first homosexual experience. A formal. Former friend recalled that he believed the army had damaged Dean, stating, quote, He told me that's where it started. You know. The first time he ever, like, turned to a F-A-G word. <laughs> really? I guess that's the only way I can say that. Unquote. That was him saying that, not me. So that's where is he had his first the, homosexual experience. Is that the only way you could say that, sir? I mean... <laughs> that's, like the, that's like that song, the... I'm trying to find the words to describe this girl without being disrespectful. So let's go with sexy bitch. (laughs) There was no other words other than sexy bitch. Yeah. Anyway, sir, I I believe that there is other ways that you can um, say it um, that isn't using the F-A-G word. Mm -hmm. I'm just Just saying. Yeah. And since then, it got worse and worse, he says. Yikes. Um, and I just want to point out here to you guys, and I know you guys will never think this, and our listeners would never think this either, but Dean was a gay man. However, mm-hmm. the monstrous acts that he goes on to commit have nothing to do with homosexuality. These actions are completely separate from his life as a gay man and having relationships with other gay men that are consensual, because he does have that. Okay. Um, but his crimes that he commits against the um, children the and yeah, the victims right. essentially are... Um, completely separate from his life as, as a gay person. One right. has nothing to do with the other. Right. Um, so when Dean returned home, the candy company was moved from the Coral family garage into a larger shed facility right across from uh, Helms Elementary School in the Heights neighborhood of Texas. So I'm going to take a minute now to talk about the Heights neighborhood of Texas. Mm. So the Heights is a suburb of Texas named so because of its higher ele- elevation from the Houston like city core. In the 1890s, many Houston residents fled to the area to escape the plague of yellow fever, believing that a higher elevation would spare them from contracting it. Hmm. In the early 70s, when this story takes place, the Heights was known as a lower to middle class neighborhood. The people there were pretty good folks who lived modest lives. Um, You could go from one neighborhood where it's like neatly trimmed lawns and well-kept homes to... You know, just like a couple houses down, you've got no grass and cars parked everywhere and garbage all over the place. It was just, you know. An eclectic neighborhood. Yes. Um, (laughs) Now, many of the residents who lived in the Heights did come from poverty. Uh, Most of the houses were small bungalows and many had been converted over the years into multiple units and rented out as apartments and um, like boarding rooms to struggling families in need of an affordable place to live. Because the land and real estate came at such a low cost in the area, there were many factories who set up shop there and were able to run with cheap labor from the citizens around there. And now, even though the Heights was a part of Houston or is a part of Houston, it had the feel of a small town. So a lot of people knew each other. 
Unlike the rest of Houston, the Heights was known to be a relatively safe place to live with crime rates that were basically non-existent in comparison to the rest of Houston, save for the occasional break and enter or shoplifter. Um, they said that this was basically an area where many of the people believed you don't shit where you eat. Mm. And so the criminals lived in the Heights and they committed crimes other places. Right. So you really didn't have to worry about those crimes that you would yeah. see in Houston. But a, a little bit of respect there. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ironic because, like you said, it was a lower kind of end neighborhood. But yet, like you said, it was more of a community base. Yes. People yeah. knew each other and they weren't going to cause Rob problems. each other. Exactly. Yeah. Fair. Um, so the worst offense noted in the area up until this time was somebody called the Heights Phantom. This was a man who would ring the doorbells of unsuspecting single women and just appear, quote, naked in the doorway before running off, cackling into the shadows. What? When Imagine. They brought, when they thought they had arrested him, they brought in a woman that some of the women who had done this to, and they said, do you recognize any of the men in this lineup? And they were like, well, we weren't looking at their faces. Yeah. yeah. Imagine you open your door and then some dude is just running off. And you're like, was that, was, was that a dick? Like, was he naked? Is that a wiener? <laughs> what is happening? I actually would love that. It would be, be kind of fun. It would be hilarious. <laughs> if you're an, a cons- if you're an adult, I guess you can't really be consenting to, to an act like that. But I mean, if you're an adult and you're not easily offended and it's just a man running around naked at your doorway. It's almost like you grab some popcorn, you've got a little show. Yeah, it's a really great way to break up your day. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> things are going a bit boring. It's like, there's okay. a dick at your door. <laughs> Thank you, Phantom of the Heights. <laughs> Phantom dick? Phantom dick. Um, so it was after opening the factory in the Heights that Dean would officially earn the nickname, quote, the Candyman. Oh, I, thought, oh. I really thought it was going to be Phantom dick. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, Dean's entire life revolved around the candy company, and he would work day in and day out there. As time went on, his mother took less of an interest in the company and started to focus more on her own love life, constantly seeking a new husband after her second marriage had completely failed. Uh, she was dressing up and going out and leaving Dean to do all the heavy lifting at the candy factory, which he loved. He did not care. Their relationship became very strange at this point, with some people who knew them stating that it was almost like Dean was the, the father and his mother was his child. Interesting. Mm. He would scold her publicly when he thought she wasn't acting right and was also very protective of her. Like, he did not want anyone fucking around with Mary West. That's for sure. Sure. So at the factory, Dean was more or less well-liked by everyone. Um, When he wasn't busy making pralines and divinity, which was um, the candies that they kind of focused on at the factory, he was found puttering away on some technological gadget of one kind or another. Former employees stated that he had the candy factory absolutely rigged with all sorts of homemade security devices like hidden microphones and cameras. Some of the employees would often prank call the factory and leave phony messages on Dean's answering machines saying that they like wanted to place all these orders and like we need all of this stuff and it was going to be this huge money making order. And then right before they gave the name and address, they would hang up. Oh, they would all have a good laugh at Dean's expense, but said that Dean was always a really good sport about it. All of the employees knew that Dean was gay. However, it wasn't something that bothered them. And it wasn't because they said, quote, he wasn't all swishy about it. Sure. Swish? Okay. Yeah. It was just something everyone knew about him, but nobody ever talked about. I mean, I can see that in a certain time of history that that's just how people were. Yeah, people just didn't talk about it. Yeah. It was known, but not discussed. Yeah. In public. 
So the Coral Candy Company would expand and join forces with another company owned by a couple called Ruby and Richard Jensen, who produced and sold candied apples. Mm, Yum. I could fuck up a candy apple right now. They're so good, but they're so messy and sticky. And then once you get to the... Well, and then once you get to the actual apple part, you're like, do I even want this? If I wanted an apple, I would have ate an apple. And they're usually made with Macintosh apples. They're like super Super sour. sour. Yeah. I love a Macintosh apple. Me too. I could Mm. really go for that right now. Why am I craving an apple? Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, so the Jensen, uh, Jensen couple had nothing but good things to say about their former friend and business partner. In an interview, Ruby Jenkins said, quote, we really liked him. Both of us did. But she also stated that she knew there was something just a little different about him, especially when it came to girls. She said, quote, there were girls around that were just wild about Dean, but he wouldn't give them the time of day. His mother would try to line him up on dates, but he just didn't want any part of it. He'd get mad at her. I never saw him date a woman or even show the slightest interest in a woman. No, because he was gay. Yeah. (laughs) On one occasion, when one of the female employees was actually able to get Dean to go on a date with her... Her hopes of landing what she thought was a hardworking, reliable man was crushed when he showed up to take her to the beach on their date with a van full of teenage boys in tow from the local oh, jun- like middle like school. That. <laughs> now, his mother would say that bringing the kids with him helped just put a buffer between himself and any would-be romantic situation. She said he just wasn't ready to settle down and he did not want to be the one to hurt any poor girl's feelings. Again... Mary was in complete denial that Dean was gay. Definitely. She's swimming in that river. With the candy factory operating right across the street from an elementary school. Oh, no. Dean started to build relationships with a lot of the neighborhood kids. He would have lineups of kids waiting around outside the factory to get their hands on free candy scraps, which Dean would always be willing to supply to them. Scraps. People around the neighborhood would refer to Dean Coral as a Pied Piper of sorts because the kids were obsessed with him. Well, yeah, he's giving them free candy. Yes. I would, too. Um, They all loved him, and he appeared to really enjoy their company as well. Um, Even the principal from the local school had called the factory and said, like, please stop giving the kids the candy. They're crossing the street and risking their safety to get it. And Dean was like, you know, you're right. I'll stop doing it. But he never did. As soon as they lined up at the door, he would be handing out the free samples again. Well, and the principal's probably like, these kids are jacked on sugar. (laughs) Fuck off, sir. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, To make the place more, like, kid-friendly, I guess you could say, Dean would end up installing a pool table in the rear of the factory and the place became a hangout where all the kids would go after school and he would have, like, radios and TVs and all that kind of, like, fancy shit that kids would love. Exactly. Gross. (laughs) Um, So, like I said, he had... um, he would take them for rides on his motorcycle and take them to day trips to the beach in his like pimped out surfer van. And he acted like a big brother figure to all of the kids. Um, like I said, he had radios and TVs and all these cool state of the art gadgets that the kids love to come and play with. Everything about the environment that Dean created at the back of the candy factory was for the enjoyment of the local kids. Mm-hmm. Now, People from the area told me- the media after, quote, Dean loved kids. I never saw a man who loved kids like Dean. They were always around, hugging on him, and he just loved it. Oh, my gosh. If we didn't know he was a mass murderer, that would be really sweet. Exactly. But it's so sinister. Yeah. Because we know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it just makes me so creeped out. For the most part, it was the preteen and teenage boys from the area that would frequent the shed where Coral Candy Factory was. Employees would notice that Dean would be giddy when the boys were around. 
And for the most part, it did not bother anyone. Like I said, everyone knew that Dean was gay, but they just didn't call any attention to it. But there was one boy who was just really put off by Dean to the point where he became afraid to even work with him. Now, we're going to call this boy Jimmy. I don't believe that's his real name, but that's what we're going to be calling him. Um, He worked for the Coral Candy Company, and he was their after-hours cleaner. Ruby Jenkins stated that it wasn't necessarily that Jimmy didn't like Dean, but he almost appeared to be afraid to be alone with him. So he would refuse work if he was going to have to be alone with Dean after hours. Yikes, his spidey senses were tingling. Yes. Now, aside from Jimmy, everyone else remembered Dean pretty fondly from that time. Now, and it also makes me wonder if not even just spider senses are going off, but if Jimmy had maybe experienced, experienced something yeah. and was afraid to tell. Because as a teenage boy in the 60s and 70s, you probably wouldn't be willing to come forward with that. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, That being said, for as kind and gentle as most of his employees remember Dean Quarrel being, they also suspected that he had quite the mad temper that he was hiding. According to former employees, he had a room at the back of that candy factory known as Dean's Pouting Room. No, No. not a pouting room. (laughs) He would retreat there when he was angry. Which I guess is good so that you're not, like, acting out. Oh, he rent. would go there. He would go to his okay, pouting room. he didn't room. send children there. No, he went to his own pouting okay. room. Okay. I like that. Take some space. I always tell my clients, just yeah. take some space. So, I mean, at least he wasn't taking it on his employees, but, yeah. Um, no one really knew what he would do in the pouting room except for, obviously, pout. But when he came out, he was in better spirits. Love that. A little self-therapy room. Now, in the last few years that the candy factory was running, employees remember their boss developing a really new, strange hobby, and that hobby was just digging. This guy was digging. digging. He would dig and dig for hours on end. Is he digging graves? He dug holes and trenches behind the factory yeah. and in the floor of his pouting room. Great. When he finished... In the floor? In the floor of his pouting room. So it was like a dirt floor because it's a shed. It's a factory, right? right? So, um... That's very bizarre. <laughs> yeah so when he finished he would sometimes cover the holes in the pouting room with uh, a board and then cement over it most of his digging was done at night and when asked what he was doing he often explained that it was because there when the candied apples would rot they drew bees and when the pecans became uh became like when they were spoiled they would become infested with weevils so to avoid like having like a major bug problem he was burying like all the old product that they and were that selling seems- believable and legitimate i suppose it'd be like compost yeah i just wouldn't think anything of it i'd be like okay that's yeah. the reason i guess because your mind doesn't want to go to like your boss's no. murderer right yeah 100 so, um now ruby jenkins said of the digging quote he was real good about it he did his burying without a word of complaint the way he did everything else she went on to say quote he had this big roll of clear plastic and sacks <gasps> and sacks of cement and some other stuff in his pouting room we didn't ask what he used that for and this oh, is no. why I love Texas. Because mm. <laughs> sure. You just have those stuff and you know what? That ain't no big deal. No, no big deal. My Southern hospitality will stop me from asking you why. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Southern lady and I'm not being in your business, yeah. sir. Your business is your business. With the candy factory turning a steady profit and Dean running the business, his mother turned to a computer dating service to try and find her next husband. No she's, shit. She's, Online dating. But this Mary's quite thirsty. She Mary's is. on Tinder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
so <laughs> she would fill out all of her information on one of those like little scantron pieces of paper and then it was like fed into the or do you guys remember doing that yes do you remember doing it like on valentine's day to find like your perfect match yes you would feed it in and then it'd print out all these people that were your perfect my match. perfect match one year was my boyfriend that year at like 99.9 percent accuracy and i was like well isn't that a goddamn coincidence <laughs> my perfect match was always people i never knew really or people that i did not care for yeah (laughs) like why yeah and we live in a small town like once you they know that you're their perfect match it's like fuck (laughs) now what (laughs) now what i was just glad that i was like a transplant in blenheim because that meant i probably wasn't related to anyone there so at least there was that anywho with the candy factory turning a steady profit we already read that So anyway, so she filled out the paper and it was fed into that machine and it spewed out her perfect match. Hmm. Now, this man was a guy named Walt Colburn. He was a merchant seaman and would quickly become Mary's next husband. Mm -hmm. They only dated like once and then like, this is it. I was going to say, I swear to God, back in those 60s and 70s, you had three dates and then you were engaged to the man. It was like, it's done. Yeah. So the two honeymooned in Mexico City where the honeymoon quickly ended. (laughs) Oh, no. Mary learned of her husband's violent and angry temper while in Mexico. Let's just say, oh, let's just say the honeymoon did not last very long. Anyways. (laughs) That's that's exactly what we're saying. (laughs) Mary stated, quote, he raised hell with a cab driver and really showed himself up. I thought he was a psycho. I mean, don't marry people after three days. Exactly. Mary. Yeah. (laughs) Now, early in the marriage, Mary found out that Walt's former wife had committed suicide, but it was suspected by many that Walt had actually killed her. Yikes. After several spats early on, Mary had the marriage annulled, only to repeat what happened with Arnold Coral and remarry Walt very shortly after. Interesting. Mary said that Walt was extremely jealous, once flying from Boston to Houston because she didn't answer the phone and he believed that she was cheating on him. He stormed into the house, ready to cause a big shit with Mary, and she was just sitting in the living room, sewing. So, he was wrong. (laughs) Aside from the problems she had with Walt, the biggest issue was that she didn't, or was that he didn't like Dean. So, he could do anything he wanted to her, but he didn't like Dean. So, what he would do, he would steal objects from his own house and then blame it on Mary's beloved oldest son, trying to drive a wedge between them. Sounds like he had a little intuition happening there. Yes. So the relationship between Dean and Walt was so strained that Dean refused to even come over to his mother's home because he didn't want anything to happen, like any fights to happen, which crushed Mary. Mm. She just could not. Like on Christmas Eve, on her baby boy's birthday, and she, for one, can't spend it with him, and for two, can't even spend Christmas with him. Yeah, She was like, it, I'd be curious it. to know what... Mary's man would say about Dean, like, there's something wrong with your son. He did say that. He said something is wrong. And so did Jake West when they were married. That was one of the factors in in their marriage falling apart. Listen, Mary, your son's a little sociopath. You might want to get that looked into. Yeah. Now, luckily, the marriage soured and Mary would often move in and out of the house to avoid her husband's violent temper and raging jealousy. So, yeah. So even though Walt had, like, a sixth sense about Dean, mm-hmm. um, he was a piece of shit. Yeah. Right. So yeah. on one of the times that she had moved out, he sent her eight dozen roses and wrote her a note saying that he was going to throw her the most beautiful funeral. Jesus what? Christ. <laughs> that is not where I was expecting you to go with that. Yeah. That is if, yeah. Can you imagine? 
See, that is like flowers show up in that note. Fucking cryptic ass shit. I would lose my. I don't know what I listen. Would do. I don't know if there's any Buffy fans out there, but I have been watching it. And Buffy in season two, the guy she's dating is a vampire. He goes evil. It's it's all a big mess. But he does send her a dozen roses with just a letter that says "soon" in it, and I think that that is just equally as creepy. Yeah. What the fuck mm. does that mean? Oh my god. But yes, you're gonna. I'm gonna throw you the most beautiful funeral. Wow. That is a statement. <laughs> when he once threatened to have her committed, Mary turned around and did the exact thing to him. He would be released the same day, but was now angry and threatening to have her picked up and sent away. For what? Just to be committed. They just were like, you know what? This is how I'm going to get my revenge on you. I'm going to have you and committed to a psych ward. Back then, I'm sure there yeah. was no questions asked. Um, he was also like a bit schizophrenic. Like, she'll find that out after they finally separate or whatever. But. Oh. Um, to avoid uh, Walter, Mary would hide in the candy factory for six weeks. Six weeks? Yeah. Dean reinforced the security measures at the factory to make it a fortress for his mother to hide from her husband. Oh, so she, he knew. Yeah. So she wasn't that good at hiding. One of the evenings that Walt came to... Well, there's not many places that she could go, right? <laughs> One of the evenings that Walt came to the factory banging on the door demanding to see his wife, he made the mistake of alleging that Dean was a, quote, queer. Now, you can say a lot of things to Mary... But when it comes to Dean, you have to keep your thoughts to yourself. She was furious and told Dean to get his gun and shoot him. Oh, oh wow. That's Dean, of it. course, refused, telling his mother to get a grip. Mary said, quote, he gave me bricks to throw at Walt, a bunch of bricks that I kept at the front door. So how can anyone say now that Dean's a murderer? Unquote. Now, just because he doesn't want to kill your husband in front of you and all of his employees does not mean that he He's can't not. kill in the privacy of his own home, Mary. Exactly. <laughs> like, duh fuck? Is that, no, that's her justification. Yeah. Get it together, okay. Mary. The stress of her marriage drove Mary to visit uh, psychics in search of answers as to what she should do. The psychics mm. told her to pa- pack up and move as far away from Houston as she could. So in June of 1968, Mary and Dean packed up all of her possessions and they hit the road, getting as far away from her husband as she possibly could, just like the psychic said. <laughs> I Your believe, wish is my command. I believe she moved to Colorado. It, at least I know she ends up in Colorado and that's where she stays. And actually, once she moves there, she never sees Dean again. Really? She did, of course, want Dean to move with her. But Dean had spent almost all of his adult life literally grooming the entire neighborhood of the Heights. Mm -hmm. And now with his mother hundreds of miles away, he was finally free to start living his life on his own terms. Oh, no. No matter how dire the consequence. I feel like we're going to get really sinister soon. Yeah. Uh, Once the candy factory had officially closed, Dean took a job working at the Houston Lighting and Power Company as a technician. Wait, sorry. I have a question. So why did the candy store close? It just kind of like fizzled out once Mary left and once all these things like were happening and and all of that with Walter, like just things kind of fizzled out and he ended up shutting it down. Okay. So... Um, he did take a job working at the Houston Lighting and Power Company as a technician and moved into a shed across the, the street from the Cooley Elementary School. So his shed was kind of like a cool bachelor pad with it, oh, like all God. decked out. Across from the elementary school? Yes. No, yes. I don't like that. So he pimped out his new place with black lights, stereo systems, numerous televisions. He installed state-of-the-art security systems that would alert him by a flashing light when someone came around. He would host parties for the local teenagers, supplying them with beer and weed and paint to huff. One of the boys that would often come to Dean's place was a kid called David Owen Brooks. And David Owen Brooks had actually worked for Dean when um, 
he had the candy factory as mm-hmm. somebody would come and like sell candies for him door to door. A lot of the kids in the neighborhood would do that, which is how many people knew Dean, right? Now he had actually entered, so David Owen Brooks had actually entered Dean's world when he was just 12 years old. He used to sneak over to the candy factory after school and get free samples from the famous candy man and would end up striking a friendly relationship with Dean. Now, like most kids in the Heights, David came from a broken home and was kind of a black sheep of sorts in his family. And I wouldn't say that his parents were abusive, but he definitely felt neglected, especially by his father. Like the relationship just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. He was a small, wiry kid with glasses and kind of like longish hippie hair, um, kind of nerdy. And his father was the type who expected any son of his to be crushing skulls on the football team and crushing ass in the bedroom which david just was not that kind of kid imagine now listen here son you're gonna go crush them skulls on the football field and you're gonna crush them skulls and crush crush that ass ass and crush that pussy (laughs) anyway i just can't so dean was kind to david and made him feel special stating that dean was the first adult to ever be nice to him Wow. Um, over time, Dean would gradually groom David Brooks. Not even over time, just like from day one. <laughs> yeah. It started with free candy and then gifts and cash. David looked as, at Dean as a sort of father figure, big brother, that kind of thing, and would spend so much time with the much older man that he thought of Dean's place as his second home. And David, like his parents, like I said, were divorced and he would go back and forth from living with his mom to his dad's. And whenever he was in, like, I think his day was his dad that lived in the Heights area. And so when he was there, he would spend more time at Dean's than he would with his own family. So right. um, over the coming years, David would leave, live with Dean off and on and would become an accomplice to his murders with his job being to procure young boys for him. Wow. That's fucked up. So the first known murder that Dean Quarrel committed was in September of 1970. 18-year-old Jeffrey Conan was hitchhiking from the University of Texas to his parents' house in Houston when it suspe- suspected that Dean spotted him along the, the side of the road. It's believed that he offered to drive the youth home, but instead brought him to the apartment where he tortured, raped, and murdered him. Oh, no. Jeffrey's body would be buried at High Island Beach and wouldn't be discovered until August of 1973. Wow. And it was um, David Brooks who led them to his body. Now, around the time of uh, Jeffrey Conan's murder, that September, October 1970, David Brooks paid an unexpected visit to Dean Quarles' apartment. David, who had a key to the apartment at this point because he was there so much, walked in to find um, his friend and mentor, Dean, naked in his bedroom. On the bed were two unidentified boys tied up, and no. Dean was in the process of raping both of them. No. Oh my God. So he walked in on this. Yes. Not knowing that no. Dean was like this. Well, he knew that Dean had some, uh... Well, he's already a murderer. Right. Well, he, I, yes. But and he didn't he, know that. He didn't know that he murdered Jeffrey, so he doesn't know that yet. This uh. is kind of when he starts to put two and two together and becomes involved with this part of Because he walks life. in on him about to rape two young boys. Right. Okay. Now, um, yes. So, on the bed were the two unidentified boys... Um, they were tied up and Dean was in the process of raping them. Wow. Dean told David that he was just having some fun and if he didn't tell anything about what he saw, he would buy him a car. Uh-uh. David accepted his offer and Coral later purchased the teenager a green Corvette in exchange for his silence. How much wow. money did Dean have? I don't fucking know. And How I don't are we know buying where he kids got Corvette. And 
I'm <laughs> telling you, like, aside from, like, the murders and the grooming of the kids and all of that, um, Dean was also, like, super generous. This is how people remind it. Like, if somebody yeah. came over, like, an adult friend and was like, oh, you have a TV? I really like that. He'd be like, take it. And then go and buy himself a new TV after. Right, so he was very TV. generous. The yeah. candy factory, man, was doing well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so he bought David Brooks a Hush green money. Corvette, yes, to, to keep by his silence, essentially. Dean also told David that, you know, like, don't worry, I'm just involved in this sex trafficking ring. These boys... Don't worry! These boys are, that are here with me, they're just gonna be sold and sent to California. No big deal. It's yeah. okay, don't don't worry yeah. about them. Is that true? Well, we don't know for sure if that's true. In this particular case, it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. He offered David $200 for every subsequent boy that he would lure back to the apartment. That's a lot of money back then. Yeah. yeah. Right, um, that's kind of a lot of... It's like $1,500 today. That's a lot, yeah. yeah. Well, even 200 like, bucks is a lot of money now. Yeah. I mean, not to lure children, but... Yeah. But, but if still... you're 15, like David Brooks is, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, later, Dean would come clean to David about what he was really up to, which was raping and murdering young boys. Oh my God. Now, I forgot to mention this, and I cannot believe I didn't put this in my notes but dean actually had a like it was an it was abuse but it's described as a sexual relationship with with david brooks from the time he was 12 Mm. like he was paying him like 10 bucks a pop to let for david to let dean perform oral sex on him so So he he would pay david i can't believe i didn't put that in my notes but i was like was always getting blowjobs from him from dean yes dean paid him to basically suck his dick Yes. yes And so David was like deep in this. Okay? Yeah. Like he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was deep in this already. And also how bad is what you're doing if your lie is that you're selling kids into a sex trafficking Yeah. Room? If yeah. that's, like, that's cover not story. any better. Yeah. No. If that's but a cover story. Exactly. If this kid is well, being raped himself, right? He's yeah. not. That's really interesting. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. Okay. But never actual like sex or like he claims he never still raping it's still raping at the time it's only oral sex and he claims that like that's it and david is not gay Mm -hmm. and is very like adamant about that we're going to talk more about that like way later in part two but um anyway so in december of 1970 david lured his first two victims back to dean's apartment these were Danny Yates and James Glass, who were both 14, and they were, like, school friends, acquaintances of David Brooks. Oh, no. On December 13th, they were actually attending a religious rally with um, one of their fathers, and oh. they got up to go to the bathroom, and the rest is history. Like, they no. were just never seen again. Wow. Um, they don't really know what story David told um, to told the boys to get them to leave with him, but it was probably just like we're having a party. You should come, and of course they're gonna feel safe with David because David they is know their him. friend. Yeah, imagine like one minute you're singing about Jesus, and the with next your minute father. you're being tortured at yeah. Christmas time. Yeah, fuck that. Oh my god. So both boys were taken to Dean's apartment, and just like Jeffrey Conan, they were tied to opposite sides of Dean's torture board, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Oh no. They would be buried in Dean's rented boat shed buried for caitlin <laughs> sorry <laughs> I that's an inside joke with her sister because i say buried oh and like she likes buried well she just buried calls her out, is, like what the fuck yeah. is buried <laughs> buried is apparently the real word i say buried like i am 
dignified or something. With <laughs> <laughs> an accent. Well, they buried him they, in the front yard. They were buried in the boat shed. <laughs> um, so before we go any further, because I don't want to do this for every single murder, I'm just going to give you kind of the lowdown of what Dean Quirrell's M.O. is here. What okay. he does to his victims once okay. he has them. You know what? I'm going to thank you for sparing us every detail yeah. because that would be gruesome and I don't want to hear it. Right. So... <laughs> I'm not saying that every victim went through this exact thing every time, but this is his basic of what what we know he would do according to his accomplice. Right. So, um, like I said, Dean would use his teenage accomplices to lure victims to his apartment. So David would lure the kids? Yes. So they'd be like, hey, I'm going back to Dean's. He'd say to them, I'm going back to Dean's place. We're having a party. He's got beer and weed. Do you want to come? And they'd be like, aces. Let's go. Yeah. Right. Um, because of course, like if somebody's giving you all this free shit and they're not even afraid of Dean because Dean is they, the candy man. Because yes. they've been, ha- they've heard of him since they were kids. Yes. Yeah, so he's, like I said, he has groomed the entire community yeah. up there because even all the parents knew him. So if they knew their kids were going to Dean's, they knew they were being, no big in deal. their mind, they thought they were being taken care of. Yeah. Crazy. Um, so they, like I said, they would persuade the boys with beer, weed, paint to huff. And being that most victims were acquaintances of the accomplices, they felt safe going with them. Once at the apartment, they would get high and drunk and, of course, let their guards down. Sometimes they would pass out. Sometimes Mm -hmm. Dean would show them when he called a handcuff trick. This is where he put a pair of handcuffs on them. Or he would put handcuffs on himself, but he would be hiding the key in, like, his pocket or in his hand or whatever, and then secretly let himself out. And the boys would be like, whoa, that's magic. How'd you do that? And he'd be like, here, let me show you. Put them on. And Bob's your uncle. You're done. Fucking hell. The victims would be stripped and tied to his torture board, which was that big piece of plywood with the four holes drilled in each of the mm-hmm. corners. There was nylon rope and handcuffs dangling from the holes. Mm-hmm. He would then sexually assault the boys where they were tied to the board and, like, he would torture them at the same time. No. Some of his torture me- methods included, but were not limited to, the use of a large double-sided dildo. No, come on. No, not on the little boys. Jesus Christ. He would pluck pubic hairs one by one, <gasps> either by hand or by the use Why? of tweezers. Ow. Because he's a fucking but, asshole. But also, that's very weird. Like, everything's weird, but that's just, like, why? I know it's gonna hurt, right? Yes. Like, that's torture, yeah. Now, this is get ready to grab your groin area but he would also use thin glass rods that he had taken from work to insert into the victim's urethras (gasps) before crushing them inside and at least one of the victims actually two i think two of the victims that we know of would be castrated by dean using his his teeth yes are you joking no this is really disturbing this is some fucked up shit. So some of the victims were held for just hours, while others would be held for days at a time, depending on how much Dean liked them. No, I hate that so much. Some of the boys were forced to write letters home to their families or call home and tell their parents that they were fine. They were just out with friends or they had found work Can you in Austin. Imagine that? Well, what That's is sick? And what is David doing during this yeah. time? Just hanging out, hanging out watching TV? So yeah, like he would just be in the other room or he would God. leave and go somewhere Because you hear the screams. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. Oh there my he's, God. Despite what David says later, like he is just as evil as Dean is, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's an accomplice. Yeah. Well, he was groomed he's, into he's being letting, one, too. But he's letting it happen. 
right. these kids are being tied to a board. And he knows exactly why they're there. Now, he says at first, Dean is saying, I just need boys for this child porn ring. But again... Why are you yeah, luring boys in yes, for, to be sex trafficked? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's still really bad, David. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Um, now, all of the victims, with the exception of just two, I believe, would be killed either by strangulation or gunshot wound mm. or both. Dean and his accomplices would then dispose of the bodies by burying them in his rented boat shed or so then at a location. David would help yes. bury the kids. Mm. Or at a location at High Island Beach and also at a location around his family cabin at Lake Sam Rayburn. All of the bodies would be found wrapped in plastic and covered with a large layer of lime to help cover the smell and accelerate decomposition. Now, (laughs) I listened to a podcast about this because I sometimes do that in my process of writing. Mm -hmm. And one of the podcasts had said he covered it in limes and then said, can you imagine this man just squeezing hundreds of lines. <laughs> I was like, hold on. I had to shut that podcast off. I'm not going to say what it was, but I was like, mm-hmm. um, take one moment to look at what lime is. Yeah. yeah that's not it, honey. Lime is like a powder that you put yeah. a lot of, I don't know what it's actually used for, but I've heard of a lot of murder. That is like decompose, decomposing stuff. I don't think that's its only thing, but I, I think it does help yeah, with like, like the a powder. smell. Yeah, yeah, with smells of things. So if you have a musty, well, John Wayne Gacy used it in his crawl space and said it was for the musty smell down there, Yeah, which we know was also bodies. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, while Dean was torturing his victims, he would turn the volume on his stereos and TVs up full blast to drown out their screams. Okay. Oh. To avoid detection, Dean would move several times a year. And I'm not just talking like once every six months or whatever i am talking like upwards of like five six times a year and over the three years that these mass murders were being committed dean probably lived to close to lived in close to 20 different residences wow which is why he could all around the heights all around the heights and and houston so yes and i'm not going to go through where each murder happens and where he's living and when he moves just know that He's a lot of times this is going undetected by neighbors and such because he's moving so much. Yeah. Right. So now uh, six months after the murder or six days after the murder of John, I did not put in six of something. It's either months, days or weeks after the murder of Danny Yates and James Glass. Dean and David lured brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop back to Dean's apartment. Brothers. The two boys mm-hmm. were walking home from a friend's house and they were going there actually with like very nice plans to start a bowling league. Aww. Just like so innocent. So wholesome. Can you imagine the mom? No. Using both of her sons. Both brothers Psycho. would be um, sexually assaulted, strangled, and buried in the boat shed with the assistance of David Brooks. Although David Brooks was involved in the abductions and burying of victims, he maintains that he was never involved directly in sexually assaulting them or killing them, which I beg to differ. You're involved in it all once you bring them back there. Yeah. yeah. Whether you're physically doing it or not, you, yeah. you're involved. You're the reason why they're there in the first yeah. place. Yeah. On March 9th, 1971, 15-year-old Randall Harvey disappeared after leaving his parents' home that afternoon on his bicycle heading to his job at a gas station. At some point, he was picked up by Dean and driven back to his apartment where he was tortured and killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Randall would also be buried in the boat shed. Mm. On May 29th, 1971, 14-year-old David Hillegeist and his 16-year-old friend Mally Winkle disappeared after leaving to spend a day at a community pool. The Hillegeist family was planning on leaving the next day to go on vacation, and when David didn't return home that afternoon, they knew something was definitely wrong. David and Mally had both left with nothing but their swimsuits. 
David had left behind his like life savings, uh, a $20 bill that he had been saving to spend while on vacation. Oh my God. How sweet. Both the Hillegeist and Mally Winkle's mother, Geraldine, started a frantic search for their children. They reported their disappearance to Houston police, who were basically no help. Big surprise. Yeah. And they told both families that the boys were probably runaways and refused to do a proper investigation, leaving the brunt of the work to the families themselves. I feel like that was a big thing back then. So Every kid was a runaway. Every mm-hmm. kid was a runaway. But I am going to give you a little background here on Houston police and oh, Houston great. in general. So Can't wait to hear this. In the late 1950s, Houston had the highest rates of murder per capita, earning it the next name murder city wow and we were kind of talking about this yesterday at some point i forget what we were talking about but this next statistic i said remind me because it's in this in the late 1960s there were five dozen more murders in houston alone than in all of england yeah oh we watched the video right yes remember I don't, actually. The video, I showed you a video about the amount of murders in America. Versus, yes. yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. So to put that into perspective, the population of Houston in 1966 was 1.4 million compared to a 54 million population of the United Kingdom in 1966. Wow. So, so say those numbers again. So 54 million to how many murders? So there were six dozen more murders in Houston alone than in all of the United Kingdom. Wow. So there's 1.4 million people. In Houston yeah. in 1966, compared to the 54 million people living in the U- UK and in 1966. And six dozen more. Yes. Holy crap. Crazy. A man named George Furman wrote a fun little limerick about the city at the time. Not a fun little limerick. <laughs> in Houston, we have no aversion. When others are casting aspersion, we never mind much. The murders and such, we take them as weekend diversion. No. They're Get just out of here. so used to it. Wow. Now, the police officers in the area were overworked, underpaid, and many of them had to work side hustles to make ends meet. Because of this, it was hard to actually get people who wanted to work for the police force, and they were extremely understaffed, uh, making it hard for anybody to be even willing to do their job effectively and efficiently. So, yeah, opening up, like, a missing child's case is going to be a whole problem. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to want to do it. There's nobody that wants to actually take the time to do the work. Yeah. Now, lack of funding was not the problem. There was lots of funding. The government was handing them money to pay for things like staffing and uh, resources. But the police chief at the time, a man named Chief Herman Short, refused to take a government handout stating, quote, I get sick and tired of people thinking that all you have to do to solve the problem is throw a bunch of federal money at it. Because of his stance, the Houston police were known for their less than adequate police work. Which he is doesn't, like, Dean, doesn't want to take the money. He so doesn't much. want the money because he doesn't want to throw federal money at a problem. Throw the money at the problem there, Chief. Yeah. It makes your life easier yeah. and, and protects the public. But yeah. he and did this not. is why Dean probably got away with it for so long. Yeah, of course of he course. did. One officer stated in an interview, quote, we have so few men in uniform that most crimes go undetected or uninvestigated. Yeah. Most officers were so overwhelmed with work that they basically just said fuck it and did not investigate or look into a lot of cases at all. Wow. Most officers bent over backwards to avoid taking on anything that required them to do more than the bare minimum of what their job required. That's actually really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like, for example, there was one quote in the book or an officer who was talking about how, like, if a woman called and said, my husband's beating me, I need somebody to come out there, they would say, actually, that's something you need to come in and report in person. We can't go out to your place. 
And she's like, well, I actually can't leave because he's, like, beating me. So Wow, that's so sad. Um, the homicide division alone was responsible for 56 different classifications of crime, including all crimes where, quote, greed was not the motive. So basically anything other than burglary, extortion, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, the homicide detectives were responsible for, which Dude. included, of course, missing people. Yeah. For all of the hundreds of violent crimes committed in the city per year, there were only 42 detectives to investigate them. Only 42 for the whole city? Yes. And that's like a pretty big city. Like, it's yeah. more than 1.7 million. Mil. Yeah. yeah. Like, and what? It's not surprising that when multiple boys from a single neighborhood go missing in the late 60s and early 70s, that vital clues and connections would be missed. Mm-hmm. If there wasn't any physical evidence that a crime had been committed, they were just written off as runaways because it made it easier on the police who didn't have the means or the time necessary to investigate their disappearances properly. And back then, runaways were is was common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More common. Well, they said that the like coming to the ass end of the sixties and the early seventies, you still have like people leaving to go to the like hippie communes. And yeah. like, this was just it was something that a lot of kids were doing, but not these kids. Right. And not every kid. And they just weren't willing to look yeah, at it as a case by case. They just blanket they judged. Serious. Yeah. Now, a quote from another officer stated, quote, we disregard hundreds of crimes. There's enough murders alone to keep us occupied before we even touch any of the 55 other classifications. We leave those to the men in uniform or we just ignore them altogether. Okay. Another officer said of the murders that they do investigate, quote, how much time we are going to spend on this murder? If society hasn't suffered a great loss, why? Let's go home and call it a day. No, get out of here. It seemed the only time a murder got any attention was if it was a wealthy or important person in the city. And if a murder happened in an area with a, quote, lacking of important people, such as the Heights, mm-hmm. then forget about it. You may as well not exist. Jesus, Which is so exactly sad. what happened. With these poor children. Oh, it just hurts my heart, you know? That's so sad. Yes. So now being told that their son had simply just run away did not sit well with the Hilligais. That just wasn't David. And he was no, always... No, they know their son. Yeah. He's not just running away. And he was looking forward to the vacation. Yeah. Like he yeah. saved up his $20 life savings. And why would somebody run away and not bring their life savings with them? Yeah. yeah. So he was always a good kid who called to let his mother know if he was going to be running late and what time he was coming home. Plus, he was really looking forward to that vacation. And Jerry Winkle also didn't believe that her son, Mally, had run away either. Sure, he had some problems with the law before, but he was the man of the family after his father had left and was always happy at home. Sorry, his father had actually died, not left. Because of his run-ins with police before Mally's mother was, like, reluctant to report his disappearance, he was, like... um, not on parole he was on probation mm. and so she she didn't want to like get him report in it and get him in trouble yeah. and, and cause more problems for him if he did just leave town for some reason so she was worried about all of that and furthermore mally had actually called home around 11 30 p.m on the night that the two boys were last seen he told her that he didn't want her to worry but that he was in freeport an area that's near the gulf of mexico and like a sur- surfing and swimming spot and it was not close to their home in the Heights. And when she asked how on earth he got there, all he said is that he had taken a ride with some kids. And that's all he would tell her. And she'd be like, what kids? And he's like, just some kids, mom, just some kids. Oh, because he's got like a gun to his head Probably. saying this. He told her that someone was going to drive him home any moment now. And if you remember from earlier, this was a tactic that Dean would use to conceal his crimes. And he knew yeah. that the police wouldn't be looking for a kid that called home and told his parents he left willingly. Yeah. Uh, so when Mally still wasn't home the next day, his mother started calling around to all these kids she knew in the Heights. No one could say where the boys were, but did say that they thought they had seen Dean and Mally get into a white van. Or sorry, David and Mally get into a white van. Oh, man. 
Dorothy and Fred Hillegeist were in no way uh, going to rest until they found their son. They created posters that featured pictures of both David and Mally and distributed them around town. Sadly, many calls would come into their home, stating that David was spotted here and there, but none of these leads ever panned out. Some of the calls were just crank calls looking for, like, the reward money that was being offered by the family, and it's just really fucking sad. So cruel. Because the police were little to no help, David's parents would also hire this private investigator to help track down leads. He, uh, they would spend all of their life savings on the search effort. And when they ran out of money, this private detective would, like, continue to work for free for them because he just oh. felt so bad for them. That's nice of him. And David's father would follow any lead that came in. So if somebody said they saw David in Mexico, Fred Hillegeist would jump in his car, drive to Mexico just to cross off another lead. Wow. Um, they left no stone unturned. They did not give up. And many of the families were like this as well. Um, in the book I used for this case, the Hillegeists are really highlighted. But, like, this is was common. A lot of the families were Because they didn't have a choice, right? This yeah. is yeah. how they had to do it. When they ran out of money and couldn't pay the investigator any longer, the Hillegeists once again went to the police for help. They told them about their um, the investigator, the, the information that they found, and the police officer told them that private investigators were for rich people, not for poor people like them. Excuse wow. the fuck out of me. The police then asked what the investigator's, investigator's name was, and instead of putting their efforts, resources, and money into finding David... The police felt their time was better served investigating and prosecuting the private investigator Stop. for having an expired license. You're joking. Priorities, you know? Yeah. David's father was crushed and was quoted as saying, quote, we didn't go to the police to bitch about the man. All we wanted was some help. It hurt me really bad that they would take so much time and money to get a fella who was out here helping me look for my son, but they would spend not spend a dime looking for him themselves. That's so ridiculous. And for some reason, I think I'm tired, but it's making me emotional. And I've, like, read through this, like, a billion times. Um, the Hillegeist and Mrs. Winkle worked together to continue their search efforts. They picked apart every aspect of their son's lives, trying to piece together any clues they could find. Dorothy remembered that a few years ago, Mally had worked for a candy factory, and David had gone there to hang out a few years earlier. Mrs. Hillegeist didn't think it was appropriate for her son to be bothering the nice man who ran the company. No, bother the nice man. He's not a nice man. Bother him. And told him he was never allowed to go there again. Both the Hillegeist and Mrs. Winkle oh. didn't think that the man from the candy shop could possibly have anything to do with their children's disappearances. He was always so kind and nice to the neighborhood kids. Nevertheless, they did drive by the old factory when they saw that it was all closed down. They never gave it another thought. Oh, my God. By Christmas of that year, Geraldine Winkle had started to accept that she may never see her son again, but the Hillegeist didn't and couldn't give up hope. They started seeing psychics who, for lack of a better term, took complete advantage of a vulnerable and desperate family. Some of the psychics told the family that David was dead. Others said he was alive and well. One said he was in a hospital suffering from amnesia. So it was just all worthless information. If you're a psychic, please don't get involved in an active criminal investigation. You're... But they're, you know, at that point, the thing is, they're just like, they're they're so desperate. Exactly. They just want something. I just hate that psychics take such advantage of people. It just really angers me. While families of missing boys were taking matters into their own hands, Dean Coral and David Brooks were working their murder scheme together. On August 17th, 1971, Coral and Brooks abducted a friend of David called Reuben Haney. Reuben was 17 years old and was walking home after seeing a movie. A few years before his murder, Reuben had gotten himself into trouble with the law, but according to his grandmother, by the time he went missing, he had really straightened himself out. Brooks had asked Reuben if he wanted to come party at Dean's, 
an offer he accepted, of course. Um, he would end up being strangled and buried in Dean's boat shed soon after. When his family reported him missing, the police took one look at his juvenile record and he was ruled a runaway. Oh, that's so of sad. Course. Now, just a month after this, Coral moved to a new apartment. David Brooks told officers later that he helped to abduct two victims while Dean lived in that apartment. These two victims have never been positively identified. Aww. Brooks would also state that these were the last two burners before Wayne Elmer Wayne Henley became involved in their operation. If you remember, Wayne Henley is the man, the boy that called the police at the beginning of this episode. Yeah. I think, though, that we are going to end it there for today and next time talk more about Elmer Wayne Henley's involvement in this Mm -hmm. and how this whole ending came for Dean Coral on August 8th, 1973. So. Tune in for that next time, guys. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We're going to get part two out for you guys, like, immediately after part one. We're just splitting it up so that it's not, like, a three-hour episode for you. So um, stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. We hope you're not traumatized yet. Yeah, (laughs) just slightly. Yeah. Um, And, yeah. If you want to follow us on Instagram, you can do that at storycrimepod. And if you want to send me an email, you can do that at storycrimepod at gmail.com. And thank you all for listening. Take care. Bye. Bye.